This is The Guardian. Currently it's raining. It's just awful weather. Typical Manchester weather, you know, but hey ho, it's still a nice place. Irving Williams is a Manchester-based youth worker. He was raised in the area of Moss Side. You know, my mum worked in a cotton factory. My mum worked in four cotton factories in the 70s to earn a living. Growing up, many in Moss Side had African-Caribbean roots and a strong sense of community. Oh, I've got no sugar, can I get some? Can you borrow me a, a couple of quid? Can you give me a tin of beans or, you know, give us a, a cup of milk? It was that sense of community, something that goes back generations, that has inspired Irving's nearly 50 years of work with the young people of this area. The people that live in this community are absolutely beautiful and fantastic. What makes my side is the people. Manchester's black community has been through a lot, and many, including Irving, see clear links between their struggles and Manchester's hidden past. And for me, a big part of that impacted on the community has been from the slave trade. In this series, we've already revealed the 200-year-old link between the founders and original financial backers of the Manchester Guardian newspaper with the enslavement of African people. We also follow the money, taking our investigation to Jamaica and the Sea Islands of the United States, from Nigeria to Brazil, charting the modern legacies of slavery and its roots in the UK. My name's Lanry Bakary, and I'm a journalist at The Guardian. In my work, I've always been interested in hidden histories of black British communities, the untold stories that have helped shape this country, and why we don't know them better, or sometimes at all. And that's what's brought me to Manchester, a city with one of the oldest established black communities in Europe, a community inspired by an activist spirit that has defied the legacies of slavery. From The Guardian, you're listening to Cotton Capital, Episode 5, Resistance. Today, Oxford Road in central Manchester is a busy thoroughfare, running south out of the city centre. It's lined with restaurants and shops. It also forms part of the university district, with loads of students everywhere. Just after the Second World War, if you wanted to find the heart of Black Manchester, it was here on Oxford Road. Back then, it was a thriving hub of black-owned businesses. In restaurants like the Ethiopian Tea Room, you might have seen West African merchant sailors dining with their families, or caught African-American GIs doing the Lindy Hop at the Forum. At the centre of this world was a remarkable person, the entrepreneur, community leader and political activist Raz McConnon, who owned many of the spots on Oxford Road. A tall, broad-shouldered man with a black moustache McConnon, or Mac as he was widely known, was born in British Guyana and moved to Manchester in 1939. Many of the places McConnon opened up were catered to the city's black community, 
because of what was then known as the colour bar. It's difficult to imagine that racism was legal in Britain until 1965. That's Hakim Adi, a professor of history at the University of Chichester. The colour bar was ubiquitous in Britain in that period and that it essentially meant if you were a person of colour, you could be discriminated against in various ways. In post-war Britain, no laws existed to protect people from such racial discrimination. So if you were an important colonial office official, as Leary Constantine was, who became Lord Constantine, the famous cricketer, he went to a hotel with his family, made the booking. When he got to the hotel, they said, oh, well, well, you can't come in because you're black. He wasn't alone. Famed local black boxer Len Johnson was barred from fighting for the British title by the Boxing Board of Control's Rule 24. He stated that all contestants needed to have been born of white parents. The colour bar also meant the landlord of the old Abbey Tap House in Manchester could legally refuse to serve Johnson a drink due to the colour of his skin. So that was legal. It could happen in a hotel, it could happen in any accommodation, rented accommodation, it could happen in a pub, the pub would say, well, we're not serving you. Um, that was very common. Len Johnson did return to the old Abbey Tap House alongside a group of fellow protesters, convinced the landlord to reverse his ban, a landmark victory over the laws of the time. With the racist colour bar in operation, Oxford Road became a renowned hub for the black community. McConnell's venues attracted famous visitors, like the singer Nat King Cole and legendary boxer Joe Lewis. Mack would eventually use his financial success to fund the legal defence of people from the African diaspora, including a Jamaican airman wrongly accused of murdering a white man. Mack would also use that wealth to bring an event to Manchester that would mark a key turning point in African history, the 1945 Pan-African Congress. This is a major Manchester event, maybe the most important Manchester event of the 20th century. There had previously been four Pan-African conferences, held in Paris, London, Brussels and New York. But McConnell believed Manchester needed to host one too. Pan-Africanism is a global movement with the aim of building solidarity between all people of African descent, whether on the continent or in the diaspora. Back in 1945, the movement set the ambitious goal of bringing revolutionary change right across the whole of Africa. That was the key thing, that colonial rule must end that it was discredited, it was rejected by those who were in the colonies. In 1945, one in three Africans were under British rule, whilst globally, only three independent countries were run by black people, Ethiopia, Liberia and Haiti. Even though a war had just been fought against fascism and for liberation and for self-determination, much of the world was still in, in bondage. McConnell used the profits from his Oxford Road ventures to help hold the event, which took place in October 1945. Just weeks after the end of the Second World War, Mack, alongside Dr Peter Millard, a local physician and chair of the Pan-African Federation, and Trinidadian activist George Padmore, staged the 5th Pan-African Congress. An array of anti-colonial figures from across Africa, the Caribbean, the United States and the UK descended on the town hall. Nkrumah was there, Kenyatta was there, Du Bois was there, Amy Ashwood Garvey was there. They were very big figures. There were, you know, kind of festivities and music and dance and food and all these kinds of things around. 
But those attending the Congress, which included boxer Len Johnson, were also there to work and make the most of this rare opportunity to be in the same place at the same time. Unlike past conferences, which were dominated by lawyers and intellectuals, trade unionists and farm workers now also held centre stage, sharing their ideas and experiences for a new, liberated Africa. It's interesting that the Congress started with people talking about racism in Britain. That was the first session. But the vision they were concentrating on was an Africa free from colonial rule. The vision they had was an Africa without colonial borders, without the what they called the alien political institutions, which had been imposed under colonial rule, an Africa without the capital-centered system, an Africa which stood alongside other parts of the world, an Africa that was totally liberated in that sense. It was a, a big event. People would have known about it, interacted with those who were, were there. So it was very much a, a Manchester Congress. The importance of Manchester, Britain's cotton capital, as the location for the Congress, was not lost on McConnell. In a later interview, he said that We coloured people had a right there because of the age-old connection between cotton, slavery and the building up of cities in England. Manchester gave us an opportunity to express and expose the contradictions, the fallacies and the pretensions that were at the very centre of the empire. This historic Congress would shape the independence movements right across Africa, with delegates like Nkrumah from Ghana, Kenyatta from Kenya, Banda from Malawi, and Awolowo and Wachuku from Nigeria becoming leading voices for change. These are among the last pictures to be taken in the capital of the Gold Coast. For when this day is over, Accra becomes the capital of Ghana, an independent nation within the Commonwealth. Within two decades of the Manchester Congress taking place, almost all African nations had won their nominal independence. Lagos Racecourse is the scene, and it's the afternoon of Nigeria's great day, with thousands awaiting the climax and resolved to relish every minute leading up to it. Uhuru, independence for Kenya. Guests at the independence celebrations are presented to Prince Philip. In line here, Mr. Duncan Sands, Mr. Malcolm MacDonald, the new Governor-General, and Jomo Kenyatta, ex-Mau Mau leader, now Prime Minister. Ros McConnell would eventually leave Oxford Road, working with President Nkrumah in the newly independent Ghana, and then assisting President Kenyatta in Kenya, where he spent the rest of his life. But despite the critical importance of the 1945 Pan-African Congress, to this day, the historic event, along with the man central to its staging, remains largely forgotten. So this history is not reflected in the media, the mass media. It's not reflected on television. It's not reflected in the, the newspapers. It's not generally around... Do you think any of the dreams of the conference were were realised? Things have, have changed. The apartheid system which existed or was about to be introduced in South Africa has been overthrown. And so that's a major victory. That's a definite major advance. There have been other changes. So education has expanded, other social programmes and provisions are much better now than they were in 1945. However, you could say that the anti-colonial struggle hasn't 
reached its conclusion, there's still a way to go. I've arrived at the home of Dr. Diane Watt in South Manchester. She's been an activist working with the black community for more than 40 years. See, my daughter lives in London. She lives in my end. Oh, that's where I live. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Diane first arrived from Jamaica with her family in the early 1960s. They moved to Mossside, a neighbourhood about a mile away from McConnell's Oxford Road. The long rows of red brick terraced housing served as the centre of the city's growing black community and a home for a wave of new arrivals from the Caribbean that would become known as the Windrush Generation. All parents, they had this dream. They've come here, going to work for a certain number of years, they're going to make enough money to return to the promised land. They didn't want to stay. Labour was the key reason for people to be here. People came mainly to the industrial centres of Britain to find work. That's Professor Gus John. He left Grenada in the early 1960s and spent many years in Mossside as a prominent education campaigner and long-time community leader. Black workers had a hell of a time in their workplaces. Two decades after the 1945 Congress, the racist colour bar was outlawed. But the introduction of the Race Relations Act in the 1960s didn't mean the Pan-African dream was finally realised. Far from it. The deindustrialization of the 1960s saw the cotton industry, for which Manchester was once famed, in terminal decline. And other industries were also closing down. This led to raised competition over fewer jobs. Black workers who had migrated to Britain from the African diaspora to fill labour shortages were disproportionately affected, often being the last hired and first fired. The black people worked in huge factories. There used to be a bus, the 53 bus in, in Mossside and Longside, etc., which became known as the African Queen, right? <laughs> because it ferried people from the Mossside, Longside, Russell Maria, to Trafford Park. There used to be some factories there. One of those factories was Turner's Asbestos. And there were loads of black people working at Turner's Asbestos who were not given the right protective clothing, etc. And when they try to organize themselves and call for better working conditions, better protective clothing, masks and, and, and whatever you, there was, there was a, a kickback not only from the owners and managers, but from some of the white colleagues themselves. There was equally no escape from racism for the children of the Windrush generation. Well, I came at 12 and I think where I found the problems was, was at school. Because no longer was I a Jamaican, because I realised that the teachers couldn't tell the difference between a Jamaican, a Bajan, a Trinidadian, because we were all black. And later on we found out that the teachers didn't really have our interest. So we didn't have, they didn't have issues about misbehaviour, they just ignored us. And so, in a sense, I think I was fortunate because I came here, I could read and write. 
But for those who could not read and write, I don't know what happened. Because this country did not prepare themselves for the children of immigrants. We just didn't exist. And so we just had to make our own way through. Because our parents still had the view, you know, the traditional view about teacher's position at that stage. So they didn't quite realize what was happening. But yes, we were just left to sink or swim. Simple as that. The prejudice within the schooling system was just unbelievable. More than everything else, children were feeling that they were not being valued for themselves and that they were having to subordinate their own identity, history, culture to something which was presented to them as being more superior. It led very much to our forms of resistance, to what effectively was oppression by various institutions of the state, the police, the schooling system, and so on. The racism faced in their daily lives drove black people in Manchester to build their own community hubs. Princess Road runs through the heart of Moss Side, and the 1960s was a thriving high street full of shops and small businesses. At the Reno and the Nile, two of the city's most important nightclubs, you could dance to soul and reggae music until the early hours. And just off the Princess Road lies the West Indian Centre, which offered practical advice and kept the Pan-African vision of the 1945 Congress alive. So every Friday and Saturday, that's where we headed for, because as well as being Caribbean, they also wanted us to recognise and acknowledge our African identity and to know that the struggles in Africa is also our struggle. So they played a real significant role in educating people like myself. But then something happened that tested this community and could have torn it apart. In the late 60s and early 70s, Manchester City Council embarked on a massive programme of what was then called Slum Clearance. That meant many of Moss Side's houses were lined up for compulsory purchase and demolition, and rows of shops on the Princess Road were pulled down to make way for a dual carriageway. I mean, I was born around here, and it gets you very angry that you face it and say, well, you've got to go wherever they've got places for you. This is before they even consider anything else. It's not an ideal community, but it is a community where people know one another, and you don't want to move out. We've got a lot of old people, we've got a lot of black people in the area that feel very, very strongly about this. Local black businesses were decimated, while black residents were systematically stripped of the only asset they had in the form of their own homes. By the end of the 1970s, it was estimated that 59% of Manchester's Caribbean population lived in council housing, whilst the national average was 45%. What difference did that process make? Like, What did, it, what did that do to the community? The house clearances. Hmm. You totally destroy a community. We were dispersed all over the place. And that made us vulnerable because we had no protection and our protection was our community. Tapping into the spirit of 1945 inspired a new generation of black activists into action. And it was around this time that Professor John first met Diane. All you needed in these houses was a heating system. They needed renovation, obviously. But structurally, they were sound. 
so we had a campaign around that. And I think it's during that time that I first got to know Diane and the whole number of others. One attempt to hold the community together was the creation of the Abbasindi Cooperative. Abbasindi means survivor in Zulu. And Diane, along with a number of women activists like Kaflock and Eloise Edwards, set up the group to support local women. They'd cover everything from support against deportations, help for women getting into work, and even just a place to hang out. Everybody saw Abyssinia as an organisation, but it was also a family. Take some, you know, issue like Christmas. Nobody's going to spend Christmas on their own. Each person had allocated the day that they will be hosting it. So it was a situation of, I am because we are. It wasn't about, I'm okay. If it's about, if we're not okay, then I am not okay. And also, it had a massive impact on ourselves educationally, spiritually, and academically, and career-wise. It influenced all aspects of our lives. Originally set up in an old Victorian red brick school with the entrance arch painted in red, yellow and green stripes, Abbasindi wasn't just for the adults. They encouraged local children to engage in Pan-African culture, running drumming groups that eventually toured the country and even made it to Ghana. First of all, as women, we were the dancers and the men were the drummers. But that became quite challenging because the power was with the drummers. And so in the end, we decided that we too need to learn to play those instruments. So that cultural aspect was very fundamental to our political development. For so many activists at that time, education was key. Professor Gus John established the Manchester Black Parents Association, which held schools and teachers to account for the mistreatment of any black child. And both Professor John and Abbasindi were involved in establishing supplementary Saturday schools. The Pan-African legacy of the 1945 Congress was never far from their minds. It has always been a central part of our, our philosophy, our, our political activity. The 1945 Congress was particularly important to us because it formed a bridge between the Caribbean and the motherland, Africa. The schools offered an African and black-centered syllabus a programme of history, culture and community politics that might today be called decolonised. A number even had relationships with African students at the local universities who would attend and connect with the students. It's very important that people understand that. Our creativity has not come about and is not only manifest in the struggle against racism and colonialism. Gus maintains that a more inclusive curriculum benefits all children, not just those who are black and in particular those youngsters from working-class backgrounds. So all that history of working in cotton mills and mines and what have you, the people who made those things possible and commensurately were responsible for generating a huge amount of wealth, industrial revolution and everything that followed that, it was considered to be their station in life to be fulfilling those functions. In other words... Those generations of white working class people would both have had their cultural products and cultural creativity valued and encouraged so that it, it was not seen as inferior to high art or haute culture or whatever it is. Now, my view is this. 
if the schooling system had concentrated upon that sufficiently, we won't have the problems of racism that we've got now. And they would have come to an understanding of the relationship between them, their processes of production, and we in the Caribbean who were producing under duress in the most barbaric of conditions, the wealth that enabled them to have jobs in this country. And that disconnect was pretty deliberate, actually, because capitalism thrives on keeping the working class divided. Ultimately, for Professor John, racism will only be defeated when all British people are educated about how the country came to be connected to so many parts of the world and how those connections have changed Britain itself. Whether we're talking about individuals or nation-states, you can't do nasty, barbaric, dehumanising things to people structurally, systemically, and not dehumanize yourselves. Therefore, it needed to ask itself the question, how can we assist white people to come to terms with their imperial and colonial history such that they understand the relationship between them and people coming from the Caribbean or from the Indian subcontinent or whatever? But rather than doing that, you saw these others as alien and other. And that is what has been and still is at the root of the problem here in Britain. Much has changed in Manchester since the late 1970s and early 80s. The city centre and some of its surrounding areas have undergone an economic revolution, seeing it become one of the most attractive places to live in the country, with many of the old cotton mills being turned into luxury apartments. But it's an economic revival which has mostly bypassed Moss Side. Princess Road still has multiple shops, barbers and businesses, but it's an area in need of investment. The neighbourhood remains a vibrant hub for the city's black community. But today people from Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya and Iraq have arrived and now call this place home. Standing in the heart of Mossad, it's also clear the legacy of local activism remains stronger than ever. And a history which stretches back decades. To, stop, to catch the water that was coming in through the roof. But it never stopped, it never stopped that organisation from supporting young people and fighting and advocating for the rights of local, um, local people. This building, what we stood outside of, is, is, is the Catholic Centre. So in honour of a legacy, this building was named after her. Irving Williams works at Hideaway, a youth project just across the street from the old Abbasindi Centre. It's a place where young people can come and hang out. This here is the chill-out kind of area. It's got all the kind of stuff you'd expect. Ping-pong, a PlayStation and a pool table. But there's also so much more to Hideaway providing local youngsters with opportunities to develop skills in cooking, self-defence and sports. Over the last couple of years, a really good one is that we've had young people learn how to ski and snowboard and they've been taken abroad and as part of their training and become qualified skiing instructors. 
young people who come here can also get support with homework, job applications and advice on other aspects of their lives. Much of this space is designed by young people for young people and it's striking how much of Hideaway's walls are covered in powerful artwork. We try to instill some self-pride, some self-belief in the young people and the images help to do that. There are pictures of prominent black leaders like Malcolm X and Nanny of the Maroons. There was also a mural representing different genders, as well as a prominent black power fist. It's not about black power dominating other people. It's a symbol of about togetherness and, and, and support. It's a safe space for all young people, and we welcome all kinds of young people to hide away. That, for them, symbolises the power that we have within us. Hideaway has been in existence since 1965 a place of refuge for Irving when he was a kid. They used to bring us to Hideaway to watch projector films. So I've had a good 50 years connection with, with Hideaway. He now helps run the place and credits Hideaway with getting him into university and changing the entire direction of his life. I say to people a lot of the time, if it wasn't through the workers here, I could have ended up in a dark place or you know, you know, ended up in prison. A lot of my friends, of my 12 closest friends, probably two or three of us haven't been to prison where some people have been repeatedly. Despite all the work of Diane and others seeking to improve the life chances of young black people like Irving in Mosside, the early 80s was a difficult time. Cottonopolis was no more. It now takes two Britons to produce as much as one American or one German or one Dane. The textile industry had been pretty much wiped out by this point, and in Mosside, unemployment among young people had reached up to 80%. Not only that, young people were having to contend with constant harassment from the police. In 1981, Irving was a teenager. If you're in something, you don't always see how bad it is, yeah? because it's, you, you see that as being normal. At the time, SUS, or suspected person laws, gave the police stop and search powers to arrest anyone they suspected might be about to commit a crime. You know, the constant stop and search, constant stop and search under this SUS law, this was going on and being used in this community to harass young people, myself included, a lot of us. In Mosside, just like other parts of the country that year, tensions between young people and the police erupted again. And um, eventually, with the frustration of not being able to find work, it all exploded in 1981. Over two summer nights, young people and Greater Manchester Police clashed on the streets of Mosside. Neighbourhood shops were burned and looted. Well, that noise is the noise of the burglar alarm in the post office on Princess Road, and that is just one of the shop fronts which has been smashed in in Mossside, Manchester. In the aftermath of the disturbances, the police were criticised by community leaders for their conduct towards young people, with local activists leading the way in helping those caught in the crossfire. Professor Gus John and the Mossside Defence Committee offered legal support to young people, challenged police accounts and put forward a different interpretation of events to the media. I got arrested in 1981 for being involved in the uprising. Um, me and my friends were taken to the police station and I was being interviewed in the room. What was fantastic for me when I've looked through the window was just a crowd of adults that I know as youth workers and, and activists in the community. Mrs Edwards, Barry Edwards, workers from Abbasinde, Charlie Moore from Masad Youth Club, Bayesian officer Les Chambers, Don Bodie from the church. The youth workers, you know, there to offer support, come to the police and make sure that we were being 
looked after that we was being treated treated well and I will never forget that and I'm indebted to those people because when we've got out and we've gone home we've got to find out that other people have been beaten up Inspired by the work of the local youth workers Irving began working with Hideaway but as the 1980s progressed Irving could see the impact that the lack of employment was having on the community It's about survival so those people who weren't even criminally minded had to think about a way of being able to put food on the table. Burglaries were rife back then because people wanted to get on, wanted to be able to feed themselves, basically, because there was very low prospect of them getting, getting into employment. the 90s arrived, Manchester was undergoing a cultural revival. It was the centre of the UK's booming house music scene. And at clubs like the world-famous Hacienda, you could hear artists like Moss Side's very own A Guy Called Gerald. But there's another side to that story. At the same time as the so-called Manchester movement, the booming drugs trade that came with it was sucking in a small minority of young people into gangs. And yet, while gang violence was citywide, it was Moss Side that became dubbed in the media as Gunchester. Never mind Gunchester. It was described as Little Beirut. So in the 90s, people believed that this place was literally a war zone. What you read in the paper, people believed. And the media reinforced that, those stereotypes. It sells papers. So the area was, for me, for a long period of time, was demonised. For Irving, there was another side to what was happening in Moss Side that the media did not seem interested in. Life carried on. There were people there that was working, there was people that was functioning and going to school, more people going in to university, becoming young professionals, more and more young people from the community becoming, you know, managers, and those things weren't being highlighted. Poor relations between the police and the local community played a central role in the uprising of 1981. There's similar stories now of young people being harassed um, by police stop and search, you know, because they hang out on a shop corner and they might not necessarily be doing anything wrong. Today, concerns with the police still remain. Black people are nearly four times more likely to be stopped and searched by the police in Greater Manchester. Part of the problem is rooted in perception. Oh, come on, violent, aggressive. You know, you just have to lift up your hands and, and, and to say that you're aggressive. As if white folks don't, when they're talking, don't use their hands. But we do that automatically. Look, you're getting aggressive your voice raises or half a decibel, you're being aggressive, you know what I mean? And the police see young people as being violent and aggressive, especially young black men. I think all young people have a raw deal in terms of the relationship with the police, but black young people get it even worse. These stereotypes mean that almost 40 years after the media decided to dub Mossad Gunchester, the label is still haunting the community. I have another job, I do security and I work at a predominant student bar. And the student bar is, is less than a mile from here. And yet you've got young people who live on the fringes of Mosai who say to me they would never come here. They're frightened to come into to the community. So they'll say things like, oh, you're lovely, but you're scary at the same time. And they'll, they'll say things like, I would never go to Mosai, you're joking. And that's what we've been fighting against for years, the perception 
that is perpetrated through negative media uh, um, headlines and stereotyping. This isn't just academic. The narrow perception of Mossad is causing young people real harm. It preys on some young people's mental health. We have young people who um, have come to us who um, have talked about they don't like living in the community because of how the community is seen, then it's how they're seen, and they find that hard to deal with. So therefore, we've had to direct people to mental health organisations to support those individual young people. Ultimately, it boils down to racism. Just to focus on and demonise this community for many years, it's serving somebody else's purpose. It doesn't help us. Negative coverage of areas like Mossside over the years has led to a palpable distrust within its community towards the media. Over the decades, The Guardian itself could have sometimes done better when covering black issues in the UK. The Guardian is, for me, is a, a good newspaper. However, I personally believe no media is the friend of this community. Because at the end of the day, the majority of the things that they push out about this community is these stereotypes about the violence and a lot of it is negative. They're not interested to most of the time in positive news stories from my side. And that's been my experience from any media. Part of the issue for me, the media always wants the story there and then. So like often I get phone calls in it. Right, can we come and see you tonight? This has been this incident. Can we come and speak to young people? Hold on a minute. We've been here for a long time. We've never heard from you before. Come and get yourself embedded in and getting to know young people and build a relationship with young people. And then you can speak to them. You know what I mean? Rather than you come today, you want the response and then you've gone about your business. I'm not prepared to do that with anybody. Ultimately for Irving, the negative portrayal of Moss Side is part of a wider media landscape that largely ignores the contribution of black people have made in Britain. Rooted in a history of enslavement, and the wealth forced labour has generated for this country. It, it might be documented in books in the library, but from time to time that should be celebrated through the media. Africans have made a valuable contribution to the fabric of Manchester, Then people should know of that. Despite the widespread stigmatisation of Mossside and its black residents over the years, a stigmatisation rooted in the anti-black racism of transatlantic slavery, Irving points to the legacy of community activism as a source of pride. Over the years, we've had all these community groups, these charities, these support organisations, these individuals, activists that support the community, support young people. That is what makes Mossad, that togetherness, you know what I mean? Uh, there's so much going on here. It's unbelievable. We've had activists whose shoulders I stand on that have, have paved the way for me and others like me, um, for us to be able to get the resources and the support that this community needs. And obviously, there's less money around, less funding around. So people have to come together. Organisations have to work collaboratively together even more uh, um, to support young people. And that's what I love about this community. You're n I, I can't demonise a community that's done so much for me as an individual. You know what I mean? With all its faults. Uh, and so I'm proud to be associated with, with Mossad.
You've been listening to episode five of Cotton Capital. New episodes are released every Monday. In the final episode next week, the podcast explores the question of reparations. To read and watch all of the journalism and for more information on this series, please go to theguardian.com forward slash cotton hyphen capital. This is The Guardian.